Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing Alan Pacula's classic 70s paranoia thriller, Clute, starring Jane Fonda as sex worker Bree Daniels and Donald Sutherland as a private investigator with whom she becomes entangled. So this is another Patreon request from Asante. Thank you so much to Asante for requesting this film, which I saw for the first time around a year ago. One of my early quarantine viewing experiences was watching Clute, which is surreal to think about now because it's not a very comforting movie. But um, I love this movie so much. I rewatched it again last night before we are recording this episode, and I just think it's a masterpiece. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it. You had not seen this movie before watching it for this podcast, and I am curious to hear what you thought. Yeah, I mean, I loved this movie. I knew virtually nothing about it beforehand, and my key kind of initial takeaway was like, oh my god, that's Jane Fonda's mugshot haircut. (laughs) I did not realize that Donald Sutherland was in it, and I did not know what the title was. And having watched the film, I'm like, Clute is an incredibly memorable title, but the film is not about Clute. The film is about Brie, the protagonist, played by Jane Fonda. (laughs) Yes, I think that early drafts of the screenplay were much more focused on him, not necessarily to the exclusion of her, but like he was just a much larger focus of the movie and then it really shifted to being a movie about her but Clute is just a better title than Brie which is not yes, a good Clute title. Yes, is a fantastic title. <laughs> <laughs> but uh this is the first installment in what is called the Paranoia Trilogy of films that Alan Pacula made in the 70s. This wasn't like a project that he set out on as a you know I'm going to make a film trilogy and call them the Paranoia Trilogy but in retrospect, that's sort of what film historians call them, which are Clute, came out in 71, The Parallax View, which stars Warren Beatty, which is kind of a almost like espionage thriller type thing. It's definitely the most mainstream of the three movies in 1974. And then the most famous, uh, All the President's Men in 1976, which is, of course, about the investigation into the Watergate scandal. Did we do a podcast about that? We have not. We should. I mean, hmm. yeah, great, great movie. movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think All the President's Men is probably, like, objectively the best of the three movies. Clute is probably my personal favorite of them. I just think it's interesting in ways that the other two are not. I mean, they're all interesting, but Clute is just doing stuff with gender that is very, very unusual for movies in America at that time. The film historian Annette Insdorf has said that this is, like, the only new Hollywood movie from the early 70s that is concerned with women's interior experiences. I have not done a survey of every movie from that time, so I will defer to her, but certainly of films that I have seen from this era, like, they're all about men and, like, masculine anxieties. And this movie is really an outlier in really being about a single female character and, like, diving deep into what makes her tick in a way that is really, really interesting, both in, like, a bigger sort of social sociological level which we'll talk about and also just as like a piece of art about an individual person it's just like very very riveting and Jane Fonda is amazing she's incredible (laughs) but I think we should start as we often do with some background on the director particularly because he's not a name that I think people know so much even people who really love movies but he made like several really well-known films yes Aside from the three that I've already mentioned, I think the other one that people have probably heard of, which I haven't seen, is um, Sophie's Choice, which was from the early 80s. But uh, he's definitely someone who is, like, revered by a lot of filmmakers and, like, really serious film critics. I know Steven Soderbergh, like, loves Alan Pacula, but he doesn't, he's not, like, an auteur in the same way that someone, like, Martin Scorsese perhaps is, and he just wasn't as prolific as some of those other guys. And he died at 70, which isn't super young, but like it was before a lot of these movies got sort of canonized, I think, by like the internet film sort of culture that we now know. But I think he's just like a genius and he had a pretty interesting backstory. So he was born in the Bronx, had Polish Jewish parents, and then he went, went to Yale for drama and his film career started As a producer in the 70s, he worked with the director Robert Mulligan on several films, including To Kill a Mockingbird. I have seen that one, but I'm not familiar with Mulligan's other movies. But um, 
there's a great essay on Clute by Mark Harris on the Criterion website, which we'll link to, where he describes Mulligan's filmography as like basically like social problem movies. Like there's one about race, which to kill a mockingbird and one about abortion and one about homosexuality. So he was like going through these like issues of the day and Pacula was producing these movies that he was directing. To Kill a Mockingbird was definitely the most successful of those. And then he goes on and does his own directorial debut in 1969, which is called The Sterile Cuckoo, which is a wild title. I have not seen this movie. I don't know very much about it, but it's kind of like a dramedy. It definitely has like comic elements from what I could read. And it stars Liza Minnelli. It seems very different from the movies he would go on to become famous for later on. And indeed, only a couple of years later, Clute happens. Really wild to think that all of a sudden he's making this movie, which again, I think is a masterpiece. But obviously he must have been learning throughout the 60s when he was on set doing various other things. And then as I said, he goes on to do Parallax You and All the President's Men. And I think part of why he is perhaps not as known as like a name or revered as a director is that when you read about him, his collaboration with other people working on his movies seems like a big part of the way that he worked, which I think is quite admirable, but doesn't lend itself to the mythos of like the heroic soul, like male director being in charge of everything. So someone he worked with a lot who definitely left a huge mark on this movie was his cinematographer, um, who he worked with on five movies, Gordon Willis, who got the nickname the Prince of Darkness in the 70s, who also shot the Godfather films and was known, as his nickname suggests, for being able to photograph dark night scenes in a really rich way. And the blacks that he shoots in Clute are just like so vivid. And obviously because of the main character's profession in this movie, most of it takes place at night, but it feels incredibly images feel incredibly alive and all three of the paranoia films have a very similar kind of aesthetic which is obviously largely coming from willis and i think that that makes people underestimate pacula a little bit but clearly he's directing the movies and was smart enough to hire good people including jane fonda who had a huge impact in terms of like really co-authoring i think this film yeah and she, by this point, was already like a massively established figure. It's kind of weird, right? Because like everyone knows who Jane Fonda is and she's this widely beloved actress. But I feel like kind of the vast majority of films in her career are not movies that are really revisited very much. But she was making like she was making like two to three movies per year, like throughout the 60s and 70s. She was incredibly prolific. This kind of came in 71 and it was, as you said, sort of a bit of a direct turnaround from her last really big role which was Barbarella in 68 which I don't believe you've seen but I've seen several times I have seen Barbarella I saw it recently delightful. actually yeah <laughs> it could not be more different um that film is a sort of comedic very sexual sci-fi spoof movie where she plays like this sexy lady named Barbarella <laughs> And there's a machine in it called the Orgasmatron. It's very swinging 60s. And there's some great costumes in that. But this is like much more hard hitting. And kind of as we go through the episode, we will be discussing some quotes from her because she's kind of spoken a lot about how influential this film was as a creative experience for her and also kind of shaping her political outlook. Because obviously Jane Fonda, as well as being this incredible actress, is also very well known as an activist on many causes um, kind of on the left and to do with feminism at this point in the 70s. So this kind of happened at the same time as her own personal feminist ideals were coalescing. And that kind of played into some of the research she did for the role, because obviously she is playing a sex worker for like terminology in this episode. Also, obviously the terminology we use today would be sex worker, but like she is playing a call girl in the terminology of the film. And I think you know, even today, a lot of people would call, that's how people would refer to her job. She's sort of a high-end call girl. Um, She gets calls on the phone. There's like a network of people who get clients for her. And she's mostly working with like upper, upper middle class men. And um, at the kind of the point we meet her in the film, she's not exactly down on her luck, but there was a period before where she was living in basically luxury because she was like working full time. And now she's trying to get out of the life and become a model and get other jobs. But she's kind of struggling with that a bit because she has various compulsions which she discusses with her shrink. Yes. I remember when I watched this the first time, I was kind of like, 
you know, I've seen some of Pacula's other movies. And they're really great. Not like feminist triumphs. Not that they're like wildly sexist. There's like yeah. aren't female characters in them particularly, you know. But, I, you know, I had read the sort of log line or whatever for the movie. And I was just like, feel like. Don't think this... I trust him with this material. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't about him. Like, I don't don't know very much about him. Or any man at all. in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I was just like, oh. And then I watched the movie. And I think part of what's so interesting about it is that it does kind of trade in some familiar tropes about sex work. But it's so unsentimental and so specific about the particular characters in this movie that it doesn't feel gross to me. And it feels more ambivalent about her whole situation than anything else. Like, it's definitely not judging her on a moral level for having this job. And I think it's also got these bigger societal concerns that go beyond like the specific plight of call girls in New York City, right? Like there's so much, so many bigger things happening, which don't necessarily align with like my view of the world either. And we'll get into the like deeper themes in a bit. But I think it's a testament to the strength of the movie that like, I don't know that I necessarily am like on its level exactly philosophically, but I just think it's a total masterpiece. So by the end of the film, I'm like, well, this has made me think a lot. I'm not sure I totally agree, but I also don't think it's making like a didactic argument 100% about like its subject matter. So you're kind of just left thinking in a really interesting way. Because yeah, it's like this incredibly well-drawn and thoughtful character study. It did actually kind of make me think of the current, you know, kids these days problem that a lot of film critics kind of discuss where there's a lot of kind of media coverage and pop culture coverage, which is centered around the idea of new films and TV shows coming out that are really groundbreaking in some way. Cause it's like, there's never been like a story that's examined like a woman's life before, you know, that's an exaggeration, but like there's a lot of kind of filmmaking writing that's basically along those lines. And the idea that like certain things are only being depicted and explored now, when in reality they've been depicted and explored since the beginning of cinema. <laughs> and this just felt like a really great example because it's definitely true that today the vast majority of film portrayals of sex workers are terrible and exploitative and stupid and cliched, which was also the problem then. And that's part of what this film is a reaction to. But also this film has existed for like 50 years. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, right. If you look at the reviews from this movie, some of them are kind of just like baffled. Like they don't understand what's, happening because I'm it was obviously marketed as a thriller and it is but it's not a traditional thriller and so I think that confused some people and then the more positive reviews are really pleased that it's not a sort of typical hooker with a heart of gold story and I thought that was really interesting because to me watching it this time I was like you know they are doing some stuff that's kind of familiar. Like she has this romance with the Donald Sutherland character, who is this like very square investigator slash cop type guy who like comes in from the suburbs, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> like, he is he is like precisely a noir character. Like he is literally a noir protagonist yes. straight out of like the 1940s. Completely. And she very much isn't. Like she is fully in the 70s. And even kind of the way they look plays into that. Right. And because of what you're just describing the movie's doing something interesting with the tropes as opposed to just kind of like recapitulating them in an unthoughtful way. And even the ending, which I'm obviously not going to spoil just yet, but like there are ways you could read it where you're like, well, this is kind of predictable, but then other ways where it's kind of ambivalent. But to the people watching it at the time, I think this must have just felt so different from other stuff that they were seeing that it was like, oh my God, this is like, it's so refreshing if you could get on this movie's wavelength at all. And similarly with what you're saying about this sort of evaporating of history from the way that we think about these things, when Jane Fonda talks about making the movie and deciding whether to make the movie, she says that like she was kind of just starting to get feminism and she'd kind of been resistant to it, but she was like beginning to get into it around the time when she had agreed to make the movie or was thinking about making the movie. And 
she really didn't know whether she should star in a film where she played a call girl. And there's a little bit of an interview on the Criterion website where she talks about this conversation she had with a friend of hers, a jazz singer, who she like had her read the script and was like, is this like politically correct, basically, for me to take this role? And her friend read the script and was like, yeah, you should definitely do it because like it's such a good script that you're like really getting into the like full complexity of this character. And like, that's what feminism is all about. And that specific conversation, I don't think is exactly the type of conversation that a Jane Fonda type actress would be having in 2021. Right. No, but, (laughs) but my point is that that kind of deliberation about, is this the kind of thing that I want to do? Is this feminist of me? Whatever is stuff that people were also thinking about 50 years ago, right? Like, it's not as though we invented this in the last three years. These conversations have been going on for so long, and especially in the early 70s when the second wave of feminism was, like, really crescendoing. And with Jane Fonda, who is, like, one of the most openly political actors in Hollywood history. Like, it is literally... 50% of, like, her public persona. Yes. Although she was totally more focused on the Vietnam stuff at this time. And I thought it was really interesting, actually. The the clip on Criterion is from a much longer interview. And I just found it really interesting to hear someone like that. Not that there's anyone like Jane Fonda. But to have her be like, yeah, I didn't really get feminism. And I'd be really resistant to it. And I was, like, really grappling with trying to understand it. I think the way she put it was that, like, she kind of intellectually got it on some level, but intuitively, it just, like, wasn't there. And I don't think you hear people say that kind of thing very much. But she obviously has given this a lot of thought over the years. I mean, she's very smart. She's very self-reflective. And also, that completely makes sense for the person she was at the time. Because, like, the first decade of her career... You know, she was born in 1937 and she was making films by the late 50s. She had like several very serious roles in the 60s when she was in her 20s, but a lot of her kind of best known roles were like pretty girl roles and rom-coms and sex symbol roles. And Barbarella was like the absolute ultimate sex symbol role. Like you basically can't, it's literally like if you made a Bond girl be the protagonist of her own movie is what that role is. And then on top of that, her father was this famous sexist Hollywood actor who would tell her she was fat. So like that's kind of the background you're coming from. And then also you're someone who clearly has an affinity for political activism and is very intelligent. So she has to like wrestle her way around this in this extremely male-dominated creative environment and come out the other end with coherent like self-image and political ideals. (laughs) Yes, I mean, it's miraculous that she exists on many levels because the climate was not uh, conducive to really any level of what she was doing at the time. And I think with the performance in Clute specifically, she's doing a lot of the kind of like methody type stuff that we associate with like exhausting male actors now. But in a way that when she talks about it is not alienating. It's like, because it's like the framing, right? Because it's like whenever most people are describing like method acting, what you're describing is I've done some research and I've really tried to embed myself in the character. And when they go really overboard, it's like, please stop doing this. You sound like you're making the workplace unbearable for everyone else. Or they're kind of just discussing that, but trying to frame it in terms that sound unbearably pretentious and like unique and impressive. And it's like, no, you are all doing the same definitely difficult creative job but like your people people have different ways of doing this and with her kind of she she spent 8 days tagging along with call girls in Manhattan to kind of see what their daily life was like picking up guys and kind of what their social life was like and that sort of thing which is very kind of considered now like relatively straightforward type of research for this type of dramatic role and also like there's things to do with her performance that we will discuss more later but it was like she was really trying to get inside the role in a very kind of naturalistic way so she's having the same reactions but obviously this is coming like more than a decade into her career at which point she is already an extremely skilled and experienced actor well i think what the more more notable thing to me is that she lived in the set 
when they were making the movie. Like, okay, I missed that part. Yeah. That's very method. Yes. Okay. <laughs> she lived in that apartment. They had, Pacula Love had that. a real toilet installed so that she could go to the bathroom because otherwise that would not have worked. And she had very specific ideas about the production design. Like there's a, I don't know if you noticed, there's a like bad drawing of JFK hanging on the I wall. saw that. It was very distinctive. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and she was adamant that this be hanging there. It was her idea. She was like, no, this woman would like have that on the wall of this apartment. A lot of the clothes are her clothes or like replicas of things that she yeah. had. They're extremely trendy. The costumes in this are fantastic for kind of early 70s. And the film opens with a model kind of lineup. So there's just Jane Fonda and dozens of other models wearing very trendy outfits, setting like a bunch of mannequins while people walk past them and choose which one of the 50 is like worth using. Uh, yeah, we should say the costume designer is Anne Roth, who just won an Oscar for the costumes in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. At the age of like 150. Yeah. Like, she's amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but like her haircut as well was just like the haircut that she had at the time and apparently you know she had gotten particularly famous from Barbarella and had the big blonde hair and she did not want that anymore and so she went to her husband's barber in the village and was just like do something chop it off and so that is what he did and hence the clute hair and Pacula was just like perfect sounds great we're not going to touch it. But what he said too, in some interview, I think this is probably in the Mark Harris piece, was that like she would be on the phone all the time during the shoot, like coordinating Vietnam activism stuff. And that he initially was kind of like, I don't like this. Are you, are you focusing? Like this doesn't seem like it's going to work. And that as soon as they said that she had to be, you know, ready to do a take, she would just take a couple minutes and then all of a sudden, when she had to go, it was like unbelievable. And that she would just act. And then it was like, there she is. Almost like the character who is constantly on the phone and has a variety of personas for different people in her life, Morgan. Yes, correct. <laughs> and I think it's such a like, perfect sort of like threading the needle of the, again, the sort of over the top method people who are like, if you interrupt me, my it will be gone. My focus, I can't do it. You know, Jeremy Strong's like, you have to literally tear gas me. Or else I cannot pretend that I have been tear gassed. Like, clearly she wanted to have some kind of immersion in the character. She was literally living in the apartment. But she also had other stuff going on. And she kept doing that. And then when she had to do her job, she would do it. And the result is this, like, totally stupendous performance. As you're saying, the way she manages to convey the performance of the character in the movie is just incredible. I've obviously seen other movies where actors are doing something like that, but I don't think it's usually as successful or as kind of riveting as she is in this movie. Like you always can tell when she's kind of putting it on. And also it's hard to ever know when it's not, when there's not some kind of level of performance yeah. happening. Yeah, it's just a really fantastic slow burn structure of how they kind of introduce both her and the other lead character, although obviously her character is like much more complex because I feel like the majority of movies, especially kind of in the past 20 to 30 years, they really front load the information you're given because they want to get things going fast. And this film is not slow at all, but it does very gradually kind of introduce us to different aspects of her character. So like, you know, we, we see her initially at this like model audition and then she calls up one of her contacts because she needs she needs a job, so she needs to find a client. And the scene she has with her client is just so well done because she's wearing the same like trendy outfit that she's wearing to her modeling gig, which is like not a particularly sexy outfit. It's just like normal 70s fashion wear. And that immediately is kind of subverting the cliched Hollywood image of what someone with her job is going to be wearing. Kind of a sexy outfit. <laughs> Although obviously Jane Fonda is very beautiful. And then she meets up with this guy in an anonymous hotel room. And you really see kind of the amount of skill and precision that goes into kind of the social engineering part of her job. Because she is not trying to make herself look really sexy initially. 
she is trying to make this guy feel super comfortable and has this like really kind of disarming little flirtation with him and he's being all sort of boyish and shy and she's really making sure that he's feeling really comfortable so that she can like go in for the kill and encourage him to like pay more for some specific thing that he wants and then when they have sex there's just this funny little gag where she's like you know enjoying it and like moaning and gasping and then like glances at her watch because obviously the whole thing is an act (laughs) and then jaunts off back to her house (laughs) yeah i think obviously there's this whole sort of idea of her being really dissociated from her job and from sex in her job and there are these scenes that get kind of dropped in throughout the movie where she's talking to her therapist who in the script was a man and again Fonda was like there's no way that she would see a male therapist like there's just no way it has to be a woman and so they changed it and they shot I think 90 minutes of her in this therapy scene and she just improvised all of it they wound up using like six minutes or something sort of in little bits throughout the movie but those scenes give you such a good sense of what's going on inside of her even when you get the sense that she's not being completely honest with the therapist either but i think this is a great example of what the movie does so well in terms of a specific character because obviously the like trope of the sex worker who's just like had some childhood trauma that's not explicit in the movie but that was her conception of the character and is like emotionally and sort of physically dissociated from what she's doing is like not a new idea, but it just feels so particular to her in this movie. It never makes it like lurid exactly or like gross that she's doing it. It's just kind of matter of fact about. And it's also the fact that this character is like extremely kind of self-aware and analytical about her own behavior and is intentionally seeking out therapy in a very sort of mid-20th century way and also there's like the fact that you kind of gradually realize she like doesn't really have any kind of social circle like she's completely alone so she knows all these other call girls but like she's not friends she's alone in her apartment which is why this works so effectively as a thriller and her closest relationship is also very transactional because obviously she is paying this other woman so she can open up emotionally while remaining somewhat closed off in the same way that all these men are paying her so they can open up emotionally and remain somewhat closed off Yes. And again, all of that, I think, in the abstract, I think it, a lot of the time, I mean, not that I have personal experience with being a sex worker, but like, I think that having a sense of like, the community of these women and the idea of like, women actually supporting each other is something that gets lost in these stories a lot of the time. And it's one of the things that made Hustlers so interesting and refreshing a couple of years ago. But I think the fact that she's so isolated also plays into the like broader sense of this sort of like isolation in these paranoid thrillers in the 70s. Yeah. Right. And also you do get the sense of community because you meet all these other characters from her past who are like still in touch with each other and are living together and are like working out of the same brothel and that sort of thing. And she is someone who has like detached herself from that. And in, in some ways that's made her life safer and in other ways that's made her life much more dangerous. Cause obviously as I think we may not have even explained in the beginning of the podcast this film is about this creepy guy who's effectively been stalking her and it ties into the disappearance of this average family man in another state and then donald sutherland's character is a private investigator slash cop who has been sent from out of town to new york to investigate this man's disappearance which also kind of ties into these letters so he kind of very quickly meets up with Jane Fonda's character and so they are kind of tied together by this mystery which from Jane Fonda's character's perspective is like completely unwilling like she doesn't want to be participating in this but she's a witness so Donald Sutherland just like keeps pursuing her until you know they can speak and then he very quickly realizes that she is also in danger because she's being stalked. Yes she gives in pretty quickly to agreeing to talk to him but in that first scene where they're talking they're in her apartment there's like noise on the roof and it seems like there's somebody up there watching and so then she's kind of motivated to collaborate with him because she's freaked out and she had told the police the year before when they were investigating this guy's disappearance that 
she kept getting these weird phone calls where no one was on the other line and she felt like someone was following her. And she says to Donald Sutherland, no, it's just me. I'm just freaked out. I'm just paranoid. And that a couple of years before she had gone on a date, as she says, with a client who tried to kill her and she can't remember anything about him. She just remembers that this happens or this had happened. And you get the sense that that is part of what's making her so jumpy but then also there is actually someone who is stalking her. So in, as in like basically all of these paranoid films from this decade, including Paculas, but also by other directors, there is this like aura of paranoia, but the paranoia is usually justified because there is always something going on and somebody watching, right? And so the two of them wind up kind of working together and she is trying to manipulate Donald Sutherland into sleeping with her basically because that's how she feels secure in just like interacting with Ben. And he does sleep with her, but it doesn't, their relationship keeps going in this sort of odd way where it's romantic, but also he's just so odd that she can't quite figure out what the deal is. And the deal is I just that Donald he's S- like, Donald Sutherland. <laughs> he's just like a very virtuous person. <laughs> And that doesn't make any sense in this world. He's very staid. He's very boring. He's very straightforward, taciturn, and a good moral person. (laughs) Well, the Molly Haskell review of this movie in The Village Voice described him so well. She was saying that, like, he, uh, and I think Mark Harris pointed this out too, that, like, he just was really great at starring in these movies with, like, actresses who were doing a lot. And just allowing them to kind of be the star of the show and not making a big fuss. And he's almost like theatrically still in this movie, especially in the first half. Like his face just does almost nothing. He's just watching her and she's sort of trying to provoke him and he just doesn't really doesn't really do much and he has yeah, these I mean, big for the features, first part for the first like, section of it's like oh he's just in interrogation mode and then by the end of it's like oh okay he's just like this because <laughs> like you know i guess it makes him a really good interrogator because people want to fill the silence but <laughs> but also i think they it was not totally clear to me like what exactly his job was before being sent off on this mission well, he's wearing a uniform in the earlier scenes so i think he's like a local sheriff or yeah. something but they say like, he has no experience doing missing persons work. So, like, he clearly had, he kind of knows what he's doing, right? So, like, if he was a cop, it's like he has some sense. But you get the kind of idea, of, like, he's not, he doesn't totally know, like, what to do with this sort of baroque and complicated situation. And it's not like he's totally a fish out of water or anything, but he's kind of just like muddling along. And obviously a big part of what's going on in the movie too is the idea of New York and like the urban space as just like the place where vice lives. (laughs) Although it's not exactly in like the taxi driver zone that you get a bit later where everything is just like, if you go to New York, you'll be neck deep in trash and someone will stab you in the face by tomorrow. Like, <laughs> No, but I think that's more like it's a tone thing. You know, Paul Schrader, Scorsese vibe is just more, it's bigger than what's going on in this movie. And I think this movie is just more committed to like being very specific again about the characters as opposed to being kind of big and lurid in general. But nevertheless... He is kind of this, like, coming from, like, some Bodunk town, Pennsylvania. And she makes some comment to him at some point, like, didn't we get you just a little bit, like, the, like, glitz of the city? And he's like, it's so pathetic. And she's really mad at him. And I think part of the interesting tension of the movie is that, obviously, the film loves New York because it's invested in showing... New York and all of these people living there and it like lovingly depicts like aesthetically right like it's depicting all of these spaces but there is this sense of just like danger everywhere and one of the other extras that was on the Criterion channel that I watched last year was like a 15 minute promotional video thing that the studio had clearly made 
for like local television stations to broadcast when this movie was coming out. And it was so much just like, we shot this movie in New York City, which is the most dangerous place in the entire world. How did you, the cast, manage living in such an awful fucking nightmare hellscape? And they were like, yeah, I mean, obviously it's really bad, but like, we, we, we survived. And I was like, oh my God. Like, it just cracks me up, like, how much you still see that now. Because you hear about people whose, like, elderly parents are like, oh, have you heard that Portland's been on fire for the past six months? And it's like, it's not, though. Like, <laughs> every major city in America has not been physically on fire. For <laughs> I mean, New York was actually physically on fire a yeah. lot at this time. The, yeah. the Bronx was often burning. But it's but just... Jane Fonda was probably fine. <laughs> Yes. I feel like it was probably not the end of the world. The other funny thing about that video was that Donald Sutherland was wearing like full on movie star hippie clothes in all of his like non-action moments because he was a movie star. And then in character, he's wearing these like blue suits, you know? (laughs) So that was funny. But um, all of this is to say that like, I think the movie is doing, is saying kind of interesting and kind of ambivalent stuff about sex work. And it, also about gender and violence, which I'll mention more when we talk about the ending. But I think part of the reason why it's aged so well is that it's not too rooted in just the points of view on those issues of the time. It's also dealing with these like bigger questions of the city, you know, the like alienation of people in this period real or just perceived by Hollywood, I can't say because I wasn't alive. But like that definitely is an obsession of this of this time. And all of it kind of melds together in a really fascinating way that you don't get with something like the Parallax View, which I also think is great. But Warren Beatty is just not encountering the issues that Jane Fonda is encountering in this movie, right? Like they're just completely different, completely different perspectives as like figures in the films and the sense of like alienation and being surveilled that all of these characters feel in these thrillers is totally different when the main character is a woman because the sense of threat is like not the same for someone in her position. I mean, this is kind of like the post Hitchcock vibe. Yeah. Of like a neurotic woman being surveilled and like the constant sense of uncertainty and there's all these kind of cinematography choices where like for the most part you don't really notice the camera work a great deal and then there's like occasional moments where we're very explicitly seeing things from the perspective of her stalker which is suddenly really uncomfortable because obviously for the most of the film we are just fully empathizing with Jane Fonda's character and then it's like oh no actually you the audience are like this creepy guy like hovering over her fence (laughs) yeah there was I think it was the Haskell review also was making the Hitchcock comparison, which, like, is clearly intentional. Like, like they talked about it in interviews and everything. But one of the differences there, too, is that, like, a lot of those Hitchcock movies take place in slightly, like, removed spaces or, like, artificial spaces. Obviously, Vertigo takes place in San Francisco, but that he doesn't do this same kind of, like, urban setting, which is largely because a lot of his movies were shot on studio lots before movies were made in this manner. This is a lot more naturalistic. Right? But it does add a different element to the whole process of character who's in that role of, like, the Hitchcock woman, which she kind of is in this movie. The tone is just so different, and the threats are different because it's more about the real world. But Pacula clearly is drawing on a lot of that stuff. Should we talk about the end, or do you have anything else that you want to... Uh, no, I think we should talk there. about the end. So the whole time Donald Sutherland is looking for this guy who's vanished, who they think is the one stalking Jane Fonda and the one who sent her these obscene letters. And it turns out that the guy who, in fact, is stalking her and sent the letters and has killed two other call girls whom she used to work with is the, like, CEO or owner or whatever of the company where the missing man worked and is the one who sent Donald Sutherland on the mission in the first place. And there's this scene with 
Jane Fonda at the end where she and this guy who is played by an actor called uh, Charles Chioffi. Chioffi? Italian last name I can't pronounce. This was his first movie. (laughs) He had this and Shaft in the same year, which... Which is wild because also he is like a middle-aged guy. So he must have come to acting kind of later in life. I suspect he was a theater person because his performance in this is very... I mean, it doesn't feel like outsized for the movie. It's it's perfect. But he has a big monologue at the end that feels very much like a theater person. I know he did a lot of TV also, so he might have been on TV before this. But anyway, she winds up in this like dressmaking shop, which is where one of her other clients works. And she'd gone to try to see him and he was already gone. But this the setting is great because it's really just like unsettling and odd. And he makes her listen to a recording of this friend of hers whom he had murdered. And we've been hearing throughout the movie a recording of her speaking to him at an encounter they had a couple years ago, which is on this little recording device that he has, which is part of the movie's sort of like eeriness and disassociation, right? Of like the voice and the body and the sort of like performance that she gives these men of like her sexuality versus her actual experience of it. It's like totally disconnected from her because it's just this voice on this tape. And the scene with him at the end is so upsetting. It's really awful. And I thought a lot watching it this time about the end of Promising Young Woman, which we discussed a few weeks ago, in terms of like, Having a big scene like that where you have these two characters who are kind of trapped together and having this confrontation and the idea of the threat of masculinity, because he he kind of actually mistakenly thinks that everyone knows that he's responsible for this. And he also is like extremely keen to explain himself yes. as if she cares. Right. <laughs> but he says like, if you know, then everyone knows So then like, I don't know what I'm going to do now because things that keep him like semi in control, like the rules of society are now like gone because his reputation in his mind is evaporated. Right. And that sense of like men being controlled just by these external rules that sort of keep a check on their behavior is so kind of chilling. And I think for me, what's so sort of terrifying about that scene is that it both does something or like says something really profound about like gendered violence specifically, but it also has this aura of just like something bigger, some larger evil that is almost outside of like a societal context. Like he's just terrifying. He's just a scary, scary person. Right. And it feels really profound in a way that is almost like disassociated from a social context. Like it's, genuinely i just find it it's kind of the sense that like oh they can be anywhere there's just like a bunch of people who are like demonically possessed but Mm -hmm. they all just look like a banker which is exactly what emerald fennell was trying to accomplish with uh her bad film but (laughs) didn't (laughs) and i think what's more terrifying about this is that there's no like explanation or solution right it's just like this guy just does this and is like possessed to try to and i mean successfully like murder these women. Yeah, I mean, and he does, like, part of his monologue is him just being like, well, I don't really think I'm a particularly bad person. I'm not, like, that much worse than other people. But sometimes you just have, like, proclivities. And it's like, do you, though? <laughs> yeah. And you've been seeing him, like, you see him have these discussions with Donald Sutherland sort of briefly, just logistically kind of talking about the investigation throughout the movie. But for the most part, he's just been this kind of silent figure. You, you see, like, halfway through that he's the one with the recording of her and you figure out that he's the guy. But you don't really see him talk in a major way until the scene at the end. And the actor is just great, right? So it has this weight of like, oh. And she's forced to sit there and just listen and then listen to this recording of her friend being murdered, which is just horrible. And it's very, very like still. Like it's upsetting and like frightening, but nothing's really happening. And then he all of a sudden attacks her and I've seen this movie before and my heart last night was like pounding out of my chest I was like oh no because it's just 
it's just very frightening. And I think, you know, there's not a lot of action in the movie per se, but the couple of moments where there is something like that happening or like Donald Sutherland trying to find the guy on the roof earlier. Yeah, which is like a, it's just like a full on horror movie moment now yeah. where he's kind of like looking through this darkened house and I was like, oh, okay, we're going to have five minutes of horror movie. <laughs> well, or at the beginning of the scene at the end where she's walking through the dress yeah. factory and you kind of know what's going to happen, but all of a sudden she turns and looks and like his face is behind this plastic sheet. I mean, it truly is just horror. And it would be so easy for the movie to kind of veer too far or like have the tone kind of be off, but it feels perfectly modulated. I mean, that final scene you were talking about where she listens to this recording for Frank being killed, there was like another interview with Jane Fonda where she kind of discussed that. And she said that part of her method here, as we were discussing earlier, was that she knew that she would be better giving a reactive performance. So she didn't listen to the tape beforehand. So what we have in the film is her hearing that person's fictional death for the first time on screen. And she is just like full on ugly crying, which I imagine made a significant contribution to the fact that she then won the Oscar for this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's like snot coming out. It's like a big Oscar moment. (laughs) But in a way that's, she's not like sobbing. Right? No, it's extremely, it's extremely authentic. Yeah. You know, she's very, she's very like suppressed because she's really, she's like stuck in this room with this guy and there's kind of a sense of like his predatory physical presence. Even though he's just this like average, like out of shape businessman, he is this very scary imposing figure in the shot. And she has to just sit there and she's like trying to just placate him. Yeah. And she says something else interesting about that scene also in this interview. She gives a great interview. So there's lots of good quotes about Clute out there. But she says, but when the scene was over, I knew something new about myself as an actor. I knew that my newfound activism and feminism was going to improve my acting because I was now seeing things not just in very narrow, individual, kind of Freudian terms, but seeing them in a much broader societal way that was going to deepen and enrich my talent. And that was the moment that it happened. It was very important. It was a very important time for me right then, which I just think is really interesting. And I think speaks to what the movie is doing in terms of kind of balancing both those Freudian things and the like bigger social commentary without banging it too much on the head. Clearly this movie has stuff to say about these big issues, but it's pretty subtextual. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end, she leaves the city, the big bad city, to go off with Clute to yes. the country. With an intentionally ambiguous voiceover with her talking to her her shrink about how she doesn't think she's ever likely to settle down and isn't suited to being like a housewife type. So we'll see how that one pans out, but you know. Well, it again is just like the perfect balance of optimism and realism. <laughs> yeah, and the kind of tropes that the movie is dealing with in terms of Yeah, it takes this very kind of old-fashioned, redemptive Hollywood arc for her, but also overlays it with, like, the specificity of her character being like, yeah, but, I mean, this doesn't seem very realistic for me, but let's give it a try. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like sometimes with an ambiguous or ambivalent ending, I have a very specific feeling of what I feel is, like, going to happen. And in this case, I'd have no clue, like the movie is just over and that's it, you know? like I mean, the thing is, right? This is 1971. Starsky and Hutch aired in the early 70s. I think the sequel is just a spin-off where they travel around the country solving crimes together <laughs> and they make an excellent double act because of their differing social skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think also what's a testament to the success of the movie is like, it's not like it's a romance film, but especially the first time I watched it, less to the second time, I think, because I was more focused on other things. I was kind of like, well, I do kind of want them to get together. <laughs> like, I know that's not the most important element of what this movie is doing, but like the fact that that relationship seems even plausible at all and that you do kind of feel like, I mean, he seems nice, right? <laughs> like, you know, you can also, try Also, with the, the, the additional fact that he's not very good looking, <laughs> it's Donald Sutherland. <laughs> I know, well, this is part of what I found so kind of perfect about that performance is that he's got these like huge features that look like someone kind of like had a hunk of clay and just like pushed it around right and I mean amazing face for an actor 
Obviously. I mean, I remember seeing Invasion of the Body Snatchers as a teenager and being like, oh, so this was what actors were allowed to look like in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, it was just Donald Sutherland. Like, people in the 70s didn't look good, but Donald Sutherland is a, is a unique face in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, I would counter that the 70s were the best time for men. <laughs> but um, the stillness of his face when he's just watching her is so like supplemented by the fact that he has this fucking weird mug right and it adds to the kind of like boyish quality to him and normally when you describe someone as boyish that means like they have a little like cherub face that looks like a little child but with him it's more like there's just something about him that feels kind of young in this role to me but also he's the moral authority of the movie and somehow they pull off having that not seem like the man is like the moral authority and is like saving her at the end, even though both those things are technically yeah. true. I think the fact that he almost never talks really helps a lot because <laughs> it would be easy for that to go wrong fast. Basically a impeccable movie in my opinion. Yeah. Thanks to Asante for recommending yet another excellent <laughs> episode topic. Yeah. Oh, just... I love it so much. There's also a moment I will point out, just as a closing note, she's got a cat in this movie, which is great. And right at the beginning, she scoops a bunch of cat food out and then licks off the spoon before she puts it back in the sink. Did you notice this? (laughs) I was like, that's commitment. That's real, real method acting right there. She's got an amazing moment with her pet tortoise in, um, Another movie from the late 70s, The China Syndrome, that I watched recently too. So clearly, Jane Fonda in the 70s was just like, I will have great pets on film. It's gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be my thing. Yeah, obviously we highly recommend this movie. I will say the Criterion restoration looks a million times better. Yeah, I watched a bad version. It was funny. I watched the Criterion one last year, obviously, because that was what they had on their streaming service. And... I was like, oh, right, restorations are good and are important work because the one I watched was not great. So if you have the, you know, disposable income, I'm sure that Blu-ray is fantastic. Uh, And next week. Next week, a mystery topic to be decided. Yes. We have a couple of things that we might do, but we haven't decided yet. So we will post about that on Twitter. If you would like to request a movie for us to discuss on the podcast you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast gavia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor and you can find me on youtube at behind the scenes and you can find me on twitter and letterboxd at ml davies the podcast is on twitter at overinvested pod our tumblr is overinvested podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com thanks Bye.